Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and it is October the 8th, 2020, and we just got listen, we just got finished listening to Age of Truth with Lucas Alexander, and he had three guests on, and they were talking about 5G and the interaction that it may have on COVID virus. Um, next, I wanted to have um, an interview um play play an interview with uh jordan peterson and i'd like if you could listen to it closely and i have some questions that i'd like to ask you afterwards yeah talk about it and tell stories and watch movies and do all those sorts of things yeah. That was that will be my first question. Uh, what do you find interesting about that fiction and empathy topic? Well, it's a matter of mimicry. You know, for me to to feel empathy for you, I have to see the world through your eyes, and I do that with my body. I go. What I do, technically, is I attempt to to determine what your goal is, and I do that by observing. Well, your nonverbal um, behavior substantially, your verbal behavior as well, especially the direction of your eyes. And I get some sense of what you're focused on as a consequence of that. And because of that, I can also focus on that. And if I do the same thing, then my body reacts the same way yours does, in which case I feel emotions that are similar to yours. And then I can understand you. And so when you go to a movie or you read a piece of literature, you focus on the protagonist or whatever or the series of protagonists and you identify their goals and by identifying their goals you can place yourself in the same state of mind that they are and then you can embody their emotions it's not a cognitive process it's an embodied process and then you can read off your emotions and infer what they might be thinking and then that gives you the opportunity to see the world from the perspective of other people, which you need to do if you're going to cooperate and compete with them successfully. And so literature, storytelling, not literature specifically, but storytelling and ever all of the dramatic arts are there precisely to facilitate that understanding. That's why children pretend play so often and so naturally. They, they adopt roles to, to become other people so that they can understand each other. It's crucially important. And um, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the fact that our modern technologies, especially uh, phones, because they're so ubiquitous, are likely interfering with children's ability to engage in sufficient dramatic play. And because of that, it's destabilizing their identities. I often wonder if these, these, these adolescents who are having gender role confusion and say let's call it identity confusion in general are are doing something like delayed pretend play because they didn't get it when they were young and it's not optional it's crucial there's about a four-year period from about the age of let's say three till seven or eight where you need to engage in continual dramatic play and that's what catalyzes your identity, enables you to practice who you're going to be. And if that's interfered with, well, we have no idea what the consequences of that will be. I would say social isolation to begin with, because a kid that can't play, you know, is, is hopeless socially. You're hopeless socially unless you can play. And, and you need that early. I'd like to get back to this later, but perhaps first for our Dutch viewers who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself? Well, I'm a psychologist um, and a researcher and a professor and an author and a business consultant and a speaker. And I don't know if that's the proper order. Um, I have a family. I have a wife and children. Um, that's me. I, um, I've become notorious or well-known because of my YouTube presence. Um, I don't know exactly how you characterize someone like that. 
a media personality, a new media personality. I suppose I have a very popular podcast and a very popular YouTube channel with two million subscribers and a million Twitter followers and 500,000 Facebook followers. And it's some insane number of social media contacts. And I've learned how to use that, I suppose, to some degree over the last four or five years. And use it's exploded. Well, I mean, what I used it for to begin with, YouTube, was to put my lectures online because they were popular and because there was some interest from television stations in Canada, a small television station, and um, they were a small hit by the standards of such things. And I thought, well, there's YouTube. I don't know what the hell YouTube is for. How about I record my lectures and put them on YouTube and see what happens? Maybe I can teach thousands of people instead of dozens of people, and why not? So I set up an iPad and a lapel mic, you know, for $200 and started to record my lectures. And they became very popular even before all the political um, scandal enveloped me. And then... Well, in, in 2016, I objected to legislation that was brought in by the Canadian federal government, had already been brought in by the provincial governments, mandating certain forms of, not only certain forms of speech, but certain forms of conceptualization about what constitutes sex and gender. And I felt that it was unconscionable. There was no scientific justification for it. There is no logical justification for it. It's completely incoherent doctrine and policy. I think it's dangerous beyond belief. I think it's an incredible intrusion on free speech. I know that the legislation is unprecedented in British common law history. And I also know that in the United States, the Supreme Court in 1942, I believe, expressly forbade precisely what the Canadian federal government did in 2016. And so because I objected to that, I got myself in a tremendous amount of political trouble because people assumed that I was bigoted against trans uh, people and, well, and, and racist and, and homophobic and all the other things that you're tarred and feathered with if you dare to have an opinion that varies from the noisy um, virtue signaling minority. And after that, I think partly because I already had 300 YouTube videos up, things just exploded around me. And also I published a book in January of 2018, which added to the 2018, 2018? Yes, 2018, which added to the general um, racket, let's say. And I found myself um, in a very strange position, traveling the world, talking to I've traveled to 160 cities in the last year and spoken to about 350,000 people about personal responsibility and the meaning that is to be found in, in not in rights, but in, but in responsibility. And no one seems to be talking about that for reasons I don't understand. And so... People are starving to hear that, also for reasons I don't understand. So that's the situation now, and it's a very odd life. Um, although my name is not, I would say, particularly positive among certain elements of the press, um, I'm accused of all sorts of things that have absolutely nothing to do with what I believe. Um, but my normal life, such as it is, is continually punctuated by encounters with people on the street. Dozens a day, if I go outside, of people who tell me that they're, they've watched my videos, they listen to my podcasts, they read my book, they're... They were in desperate straits six months ago. They're doing much better. And so they're thankful about that and help. And 
pleased that someone is offering them an encouraging word. So I actually happen to be rather positively predisposed to people. And I think that's rare because in our culture, we believe that we're something like a cancer on the planet and that our activity is unconscionably destructive and that the best thing we could do is to cease having children and make ourselves scarce. And I think that that's a viewpoint that's cruel and vicious and resentful and appalling. And I buy none of it. We do the best we can under very difficult circumstances and we're only barely waking up to our planetary responsibilities and not doing such a bad job for people who've only figured it out 50 years ago. So I'm trying to offer people some encouragement for their trouble. And they seem in staggeringly desperate need of that. It's touching so, you, right? It's making- well, it's very... It's very peculiar and difficult to accustom myself to meeting endless parades of strangers everywhere in the world who tell me a desperate story with a happy ending. It's a very private story, you know, and they obviously trust me enough to, first of all, tell me what was wrong and then let me in on the fact that things have improved dramatically because they've developed a vision for their life and because they've decided to marry their girlfriend and because they've decided to have a family finally and to settle down and to work at their career even though they may just have a job and to tell the truth and that that's working and so they're very pleased about that and so you know maybe I don't know what the proper reaction to receiving information like that on a rather random basis is but but it's not nothing we've met some of your fans and uh, we got the impression they were all male fans that the ones that we talked to um, and that they were struggling with their manhood and that you uh, give them this message that it's okay to be a man. It's not okay. It's necessary. What the hell are we going to do without men? You look around the city here, you see all these buildings go up, these men, they're doing impossible things. They're under the streets, working on the sewers. They're up on the power lines in the storms and the, and the rain. They're keeping this impossible infrastructure functioning this thing that works in a miraculous manner. They work themselves to death, and often literally. And, and the, the, um, the gratitude for that is sorely lacking, especially among the people who should be most grateful. You see university professors, especially of the social justice bent, who are among the most protected and privileged people that the world has ever produced. They take everything they have for granted, failing to understand entirely that there's a massive infrastructure of unbelievably hard-working, solidly laboring, working-class men breaking themselves in half on a regular basis, making sure that everything that always breaks works. And so a little gratitude for that is in order. And it's very useful to tell everyone, not just men, that they have an important role to play, a necessary role, and that if they act properly and honestly and forthrightly, that they can put their lives together and they can help their families and they can make their communities better and that that's not toxic masculinity, that appalling phrase. It's what keeps the world going round If we had any sense, we'd understand that instead of doing everything at every possible moment to label what we have in the West as 
oppressive and patriarchal and, and, and fundamentally predicated on power of all the insane propositions. Anybody who's ever worked for a functional organization knows perfectly well that the organization isn't predicated on power. You have a boss who's, whose fundamental motivation is power. First of all, the probability that he's going to be successful is very low because everyone will be working against him behind the scenes. The people who are successful are good mentors and they're hard workers and they're productive and they're competent and they do their job properly and they do everything they can. My observation has been that they do everything they can to find junior colleagues who have potential and possibility and work diligently to further their careers and find that a major, if not the major, source of satisfaction in their life. Certainly the people I've met in my life who've been very successful, and I've met many very successful people, are thrilled to death when they can find someone who's young and willing and able and conscientious and straightforward and diligent, and they open doors for them in every direction they can possibly manage. And none of that's credited to the oppressive capitalist patriarchal system which also is doing miracles, is performing miraculously all around the world, raising the standard of living of poor people everywhere in the world at a rate that's unprecedented in human history. The UN itself, which I would hardly regard as a pro-capitalist organization, believes that absolute poverty will be eradicated by the year 2030 in its totality. It's been halved since between 2000 and 2012. We're, we're moving rapidly towards a post-poverty world economy where no one is starving except for political reasons. And there's no gratitude for that either. You think capitalism is? There's, no, there's absolutely no doubt about it. It's, it's the collapse of the Soviet Union and the catastrophic economic policies that the communists implemented, especially in places like South America and Africa. The burden of that has been lifted at least slightly, and so we start to see some semi-sane economic policies that reward people for their own entrepreneurial productivity and provide them with a modicum of security. And we're producing surpluses in every possible direction free electronic communication for everyone in the world rapid dissemination of fresh water and sanitation facilities uh, markedly reduced uh, child mortality which is now in sub-saharan africa down to the same levels it was in europe in 1952 it's an absolute miracle and no one's aware of it and and it's to be laid at the feet of the dissemination of the idea of individual sovereignty and free market principles around the world. And if, you're, if, you're, if you dare to put yourself forward as a spokesperson for the poor, you could do nothing better but to hope that we make everybody on the damn planet as rich as we possibly can as quickly as possible. Because the evidence also suggests that as soon as you get people's family, as soon as you get the GDP of a country up above $5,000 a year, then people start to take care of the environment. And so you see in places like China and in India, there are more forests now than there were 30 years ago. There's more forests in the Northern Hemisphere than there were 100 years ago. There's all sorts of things on the, on the even on the biological front that are positive in, in ways that people don't know about. It's not to say we don't have our troubles. You know, I would say the oceans are overfished badly, and, and that's, that's a, a big mistake, but that's a tragedy of the commons. And, but most things are far better than they've ever been, and there's so little gratitude for that that it's a, a form of incomprehensible miracle to me. In our documentary, we're focusing on male-female relations in Canada and in the West and on feminism. So I'd like to get back to, sure. to that point, because that was one of the things that you, that you mentioned. Um, do you think that men are having a more difficult time today than women? 
Oh, that's very hard to say. Um, I don't think men are encouraged. I think they're discouraged actively right from day one. Whether that makes them have a harder time than women is very difficult to say. I, I think those things are best judged on an individual level. I mean, I was thinking about, and then if you think about it historically, well, you know, it's 2019. Well, imagine 1919. Well, we did, that would have been four years of a terrible war with tens of thousands of people dead. And then the Spanish influenza, you know, it could be a hell of a lot worse than it is now. And, and so we have our problems. I, I think the most serious is a, a form of strange political polarization that threatens, to some degree, that seems to threaten the stability of our political systems um, and the civility of our society. But, um, you know, it depends on your, on your grounds of comparison. It's not like we're starving. It's not like we're in the middle of a plague. There's no civil war. You know, things could be a hell of a lot worse. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a pernicious social viciousness that's emerged over the last 10 years that I think is disheartening to people. And it would be nice if that would dissipate. And perhaps it will. Perhaps people will gain their senses and stop causing unnecessary trouble. I mean, it's not surprising to me to some degree. Um, we have a technical problem. The technical problem, fundamentally, is that the birth control pill radically altered the relationship between men and women. It, it, it turned women into creatures who did not know who they were, and unsurprisingly, because an entire plethora of new options opened up, and it destabilized the relationship between men and women for the same reason. Um, and it, it's not easy to understand the new dynamic that, that should or could emerge as a consequence of women having voluntary control over their reproduction. So to me, it's, it's in large part the, the male-female issue is the, the upheaval of something that's the equivalent of a major biological mutation. So what we've had 40 years to figure that out. It's like we haven't figured it out. Um, I think that we've also compounded that by doing almost nothing but lying to young women because that's all we do to young women. You know, we tell them that, well, first of all, that career is the most important thing in life, which it, by, there is no evidence whatsoever that that's true. If you look at standard public opinion polls, you find that 75% of people regard their family and their friends as the most important part of their lives. Men as well. Men as well, yes. It's the, the social. Oh, Jesus, most careers aren't careers, they're jobs. How many bloody people have a career? And even if you have a career, what makes you think it's worth giving up a family for? What are you going to do when you're 50 and 60 and 70 and you're alone? And believe me, there's going to be plenty of people facing that. And, you know, so... It's no solution, and to tell young women that their fundamental orientation in life is going to be a career is a complete lie. It, 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 it's, it's not only not true conceptually, because that isn't how people are oriented, but it's untrue demographically, because what happens to the vast majority of women, even professional women, is that when they hit their 30s, their early 30s, they cut back radically on their career um, commitments and start to focus on having a family. And no bloody wonder, because, well, you better get at it. That's the first thing, because 30's pushing it. And second, well, what makes you think that your job is so all-consuming and, and meaningful? You mostly get paid to do things that you don't want to do, which is why you get paid for them. You know, there's this tiny fraction of people who have hyper-interesting creative careers, and they're, they're a tremendously tiny proportion of the population and even those people it isn't obvious to me have lives that are better served by their extraordinary careers than they would be served by normative family arrangements and, and you need people you need an intimate partner you need children and grandchildren these aren't optional 
and to and to tell young women that that's part of the propaganda of the oppressive patriarchies, you can hardly do them a more cruel disservice. And they will discover that when they're 30. You know, it's why the law, law, um, why the law firms lose all their women in their 19, in their 30s. They all go and take part-time jobs or work nine to five. They're not interested in the C-suite. Do you know how goddamn hard you have to work to be a C-suite executive? It's 80 hours a week. I know some insane men that work in the C-suite, you know, and the, the mystery isn't why there are few women in the C-suite. The mystery is why there are any men at all in the C-suite, because all they do is work, and they have a tremendous amount of responsibility, and you think, well, they have many millions of dollars, and they, you know, they have their yachts and their freedom, and, you know, that's trust fund people or people who are benefiting from unearned oil revenue in the Middle East, you know, the... The, the parasitical rich, let's say, who aren't productive, but most of the people who occupy themselves in business have thousands of employees that they're responsible for and unbelievably heavy responsibilities. And they pay a huge price in that, price for that, because all they do is work. Now, some men in particular, and some women, but a fewer proportion of women, some men are wired like that. And wherever you put them, they're going to work 80 hours a week because they're hyper-conscientious and that's the, it's in their nature. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a recipe for a balanced life, even though the rest of us might be reasonably pleased that there are at least some people who are willing to do that. But to think of that as a target for ambition is it's just not realistic for the vast majority of people. Who wants that? Why would you want to work 80 hours a week? exactly what I know this I worked with female lawyers for for a decade high performing female lawyers and all of them woke up at 29 or 30 once they'd made partner and thought what the hell am I doing I'm working constantly I mean the salaries were very good the level of income was very high but they were usually married to men who also had very good incomes because those two things tend to correlate very highly Women generally marry men who have incomes who are higher than theirs. They're thinking, well, how about if I have a life? You know, which is a perfectly reasonable question. And so, but a lot of it's confusion. You know, but what I also don't understand, especially from the feminists, is that if the goddamn oppressive male patriarchy is such a hellish structure bent on the oppression and domination of everyone in the world, why in the world are women encouraged to flock into it and occupy all the positions of power that makes no sense to me at all if like is it supposed to be magically transformed in its oppressive nature merely because women happen to be doing exactly the same jobs that men were are the women magical in some sense and are going to decrease the degree to which the oppressiveness occurs there's no evidence for that you know that women who have male bosses are happier on average than women who have female bosses the data the, the, the psychological data on that are quite clear. So there's no evidence that women run more compassionate and or efficient organizations than men. And I don't know why you'd expect them to because men and women are more the same than they are different, even though the differences aren't trivial. So, and the idea that there are no differences between men and women, which is the standard social constructionist line is only indicative of an ignorance of biology that's so profound that it should be criminal so there's many many differences between men and women and and morphologically physiologically psychologically temperamentally um, hormonally um, developmentally right from 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 in utero exposure to different sex hormones and these are not trivial matters and they have a not a determining effect, but a crucial effect. And you see these especially manifested in the extremes, which is why, for example, that the rates of incarceration of men are 10 to 15 times those of women. That's not sociological. It's because there's a small proportion of men who are hyper-aggressive, and you can identify them when they're two. So, you know, the social constructionists, Judith Butler and people like that, they know absolutely nothing about biology nothing 
and their ignorance of biology is so profound that they don't even think that they need to know anything about biology because it's not real. It's all a social construct. And it's, 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 it does no one any good. We know in the Scandinavian countries, you know, here's a, here's a statistic. The freer the, the country, the fewer women in the STEM fields. Now explain that. It's easy. If you allow women their choice, they go into professions that care for people. If you allow men their choice, they go into professions that deal with things. And the freer the society, the more that happens. And so the Scandinavians are in this strange position where they've maximally freed their sexes by introducing socially egalitarian legislation. And one of the fundamental consequences is that the differences between men and women in Scandinavia are bigger than they are anywhere else in the world, both in terms of occupational choice and personality. And the Scandinavians have no, they have no idea what to do about that. It was a shock to everyone, including the psychologists who discovered it. But what are we going to do? We're going to force little boys and little girls to be exactly the same? We're going to set up a huge bureaucracy to start to hyper-socialize them when they're when they're tiny, so that they become identical in every way by the time they're adults? You really think that's going to work? You have to be arrogant beyond conception and cruel to think that such a policy would be either viable or, or reasonably implemented. Jordan, you're touching on a lot of things right now, and there are some things that I can, that I have some arguments for, but I, I, I'd like to separate a few things and try to get a few things clearer for you. Um, and one of them is, uh, it sounds when I hear you talking that you would be in favor for a more, of a more uh, traditional gender role division. Is that true? Well, no, not necessarily. But I'm certainly in favor of a more traditional familial structure. It's like, have some damn kids. What are you going to do with your life? You know, you've, you've Sorry, got what's, your... What's you, the difference between a more traditional familiar structure and a more traditional gender role division? Well, you know, perhaps we can set it up so that men have the opportunity to spend more time with their kids. You know, now exactly how we're going to do that isn't obvious because it seems to me that men are not well equipped to take care of infants under a year old. I don't, I don't see that they're, they're good at that at all. That's been my experience and my observation. And, Your own well, no, my observation as well. And, But men get better at it as the children get older, and, and they're perfectly capable of establishing extremely tight relationships with their kids, especially, I think, after, they, after they're old enough to start to engage in rough-and-tumble play, which starts to happen really after about nine months. The men can really start to step in. In my view, I think that for the first year of life, of a child's life, the woman's role is to take care of the baby, and the man's role is to take care of the woman and the baby. And to step in and to and to stop her from becoming exhausted and to make sure that things go smoothly. And then the couple can negotiate the roles after that and make them as egalitarian as they want or can manage. And there's nothing wrong with having men deeply involved in their family structures. It's it's to their benefit. Clearly, the most detrimental predictor of poor long-term outcome for children is fatherlessness. And of course, that's something no one will talk about either because, well, every family's the same and it doesn't matter if you have a father. Well, it turns out to bloody well matter a lot because if you don't have a father, you're far more likely to become pregnant as a teenage girl. You hit puberty earlier. You're way more likely to be alcoholic. Your rates of mental illness go through the roof. And if you have sons, they're far more likely to be criminal, incarcerated and drug addicted. And it's not a trivial effect. And so men are necessary in families, and the more time they spend with their children, proper time, the better. And so that's not exactly traditional, not suggesting that women stay home with the babies constantly and have 10 of them while the men go off to work like they did 40 years ago or, say, 60 years ago. There's more intelligent ways of organizing a family, but we should get our priorities straight. And a birth rate of 1.2 or whatever it is that we have that characterizes the Western world at the moment is not. It's the sign of a very unhealthy society. It's the sign of a society that's lost the idea of the divinity of the virgin mother and the child. And it's not a good thing. So 
and I, I don't I don't see any evidence that it's improved people's qualities of life. All of the demographic evidence suggests that women have become increasingly unhappy since the early 1960s. So, you know, cross-sectional studies continually conducted year after year show precisely that. And it could easily be because they've, you know, they're taking on more and more responsibility. You think, well, you have a career and it's fulfilling and all of that, but it's not just fulfilling. It's stressful and difficult and if you have a career and a family especially if you're a single mother well good luck to you man you're run off your feet non-stop and you're a target for every predatory male in the neighborhood it's not a pleasant mode of existence and it's not one i would recommend for people even though there are many single mothers who do you know heroic work doing the best they can for their families but they're completely overwhelmed you can't work and have kids and be single? How the hell could you do that? There, it's two full-time jobs, at least, and that's only if you have one kid. So, and, and we don't know how to solve a lot of these problems because it turns out that having children is very expensive and farming them out to um, daycare doesn't make economic sense. You can, you can do the calculations on the back of an envelope and figure that out in about 15 minutes if you're vaguely arithmetically inclined and would actually like to know the facts. So, you know, you need a trained childcare worker. So that's maybe $45,000 a year. You have to double that for overhead. That includes the buildings and the rest of the structure, especially if the children are young. So that's $90,000 a year. Well, and then if you have young children, the most, the largest number of children that you can place with a caregiver is three, possibly four, but if they're young enough, let's say three, that's $30,000 a child. Well, that's post-tax money. Well, if you have two children, how many people make enough money to spend $60,000 a year having someone else take care of their children? And that, that problem isn't going to go away. You're going to hire un, untrained workers to, to take care of the children. You're going to have substandard um, physical infrastructure to, 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 to provide them with. There's no one's figured that out economically. Well, the Scandinavians seem to have figured it out. If cheap uh, child care or even state funded child care and also a paternal leave that's divided. And what's their birth rate? Well, but why is that so important, the birth rate? Because it's, it's... Well, I don't know. What, what's so, what's so important? I mean, that's part of the question. Well, what's important? Well, children are important. And one isn't enough. No. First, well, first of all, we don't even know if children can be raised on their own. I mean, how... We don't know. I was raised on my own. Well, well, I mean, it happens. But, you know, it, the natural human environment is, to be, is for children to be surrounded by other children. And we have no idea how much socialization occurs as a consequence of having siblings. You know, you think, well, you're raised by your parents. It's like, no, not in a, not in a standard human environment. Mostly you're raised by your siblings and your friends. And if you don't have any siblings, then, well, what does that do to you? Well, you don't know. And no one knows, but it makes you different than you would otherwise be. I, I would say one of the things that it's likely to do is to make you substantially more narcissistic than you would otherwise be. And that's obviously no slur on you. But, you know, siblings keep each other in place. And they, and they, teach, you, they teach you how to interact under very competitive conditions with other people. And they play with you and they're role models for you. And, you know... We don't know if the, the, a structure of two parents and one child is stable or healthy. We know nothing about that. And, and my, my suspicions are that it's not, because children need other children. So Now, we do see that the Scandinavian countries, and I don't include Holland in that. People tend to include Holland. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we are a Scandinavian country. That they, are, uh, they score highest on happiness, so they must do something right. Well, they're rich. There are, also, there are also other rich countries, but then... Yes, and most of the rich countries score quite high on happiness. The Scandinavians do do particularly well. But the difference between them and the Canadians and the Americans and so forth isn't that great. I mean, they're, and, and they are actually quite staggeringly rich, especially the Norwegians, since they have all their oil money. And so there's multiple reasons why their societies are stable. They're also homogenous countries in the large which also seems to be something that contributes to the stability of communities, according to the work of Robert Putnam from Harvard. 
And they're small countries and they're relatively easy to govern. And so there's multiple reasons why the Scandinavians might be doing well. And their egalitarian policies are perhaps part of it, but it takes careful analysis to pull those things apart. And, 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 measure hap and measuring happiness is no straightforward thing either. And I would say that their alcoholism rates are relatively high. So... Um, it's a complex question. Yeah, it, I know I studied psychology. So it is. It's a complicated I question, and so and the Scandinavians. But I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which general economic prosperity and a relative heterogeneity or homogeneity of of social expectation is a major contributor. But I'm just trying to find out: uh, Do you or do you not think that gender equality is also something that leads to happiness, that makes couples? Happier. Well, it depends on what you mean by equality. Well, you know, if you... if you mean, well, that equality is a very complicated word because people use it to signify equality of outcome, which I think is absolutely an appalling concept, or they use it to signify equality of opportunity. And equality of opportunity means set your society up so those who have the talent have the untrammeled ability to express it. Well, great. Anyone with any sense, even if they were greedy, would agree with that. I mean, if you're talented, let's say you're a great musician. Well, I just assume you had the chance to show that because maybe I could listen to your music. You know, you, you have to be a fool not to be in favor of equality of opportunity. Talent is in short supply, and we need to encourage it wherever we can possibly discover it. Independent of race, creed, and color, and gender, and all of those things. Sex. And so... People should be, shouldn't hide their light under a bushel. We've known that forever. But then to equate that with equality of outcome and to say that, well, because there are differences in, let's say, the sex um, represent, representation by sex at different strata of different organizations, that that's a consequence of, of, of some sort of fundamental sociological oppression is an entirely different argument, as well as being different than the argument that all of the outcomes should in fact be the same if the society was equal. Because there's no evidence that men and women given free choice will choose the same outcomes. And why would they? I mean, look, here's a question. Diversity, inclusivity, equity, that the triumvirate, right, the, the modern triumvirate, um, equity is our equality of outcome. Okay, let's talk about diversity. Are people different or not? Well, if they're diverse and diversity is worth pursuing, then people are different. Or they're not. It's one or the other. So if they're diverse, they're different. Well, if they're different, if you let them manifest their diversity, you're not going to get equality of outcome. It's so incoherent that it defies comprehension. It's like if people were the same, well, then you get equality of outcome. And if they were the same, then you wouldn't have to worry about diversity. But if they're different, importantly different, culturally or biologically, whatever the reasons you happen to come up with, and you leave them be, they're going to pursue their individual, idiosyncratic, diverse interests, and that's going to produce an entire plethora of unequal outcomes. And in fact, we mostly work for unequal outcomes. You know, I mean, you have a career, you picked a specific career, you don't expect to be absolutely equal with everyone else on every single parameter because you specialized in something and you're hoping that you can develop some expertise that, that ratchets you up a competence hierarchy so that you're good for something and so that you have some opportunities. And that's all associated with unequal outcomes as well. And, and it, there's supposed to be something bad about that? It's like it's what we're striving for. It doesn't mean that people are happy when they walk down the street and see a homeless person lying there, you know, half frozen to death and alcoholic in their sleeping bag. No one wants that. But those problems are very difficult to solve. You think, well, it's an economic problem. It's like, not usually. It's usually a mental illness problem, or it's an addiction problem, or most commonly, it's an alcoholism problem. And throwing money at that is not going to help. So, you know, we, we have these hyper-simplified solutions for problems that are so complex that, 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 that fools leap in where angels fear to tread. And we associate poverty with lack of money. And that's, both the conservatives and the liberals do that. And it's the height of hyper-simplification because people's problems are far more complicated than 
their mere economic difficulties. I, it would be lovely. I was thinking about this the other day when I was writing. Like, it would be lovely to believe that the one percent, you know, who control the world's resources, are somehow protected in some fundamental way against the catastrophes and tragedies of existence. But they're not. You meet you meet people who are well off. You know, they have a buffer. It's better than to be poverty-stricken. It's certainly better than to be homeless. But the relationship between happiness and income comes to a halt at about middle-class level. And I don't care how much money you have, you're still going to get Alzheimer's disease. You're still going to get cancer. The people that you love are still going to die. You're still going to fight with your children. You're still going to divorce your spouse. And you're not protected nearly as well by your money as everybody would like to hope. You know, and that's actually rather sad because it wouldn't it be lovely if we could have 1% of the population who are actually in a glass bubble protected from the catastrophes of life and at least other people could strive for that. But it's nowhere near that simple. Now, again, we have to separate a few things because I'm going to get some water because you're touching upon, every time you're touching upon a lot of different things. So it's also difficult for me to choose what I'm reacting to. No problem. To. So... Um, I heard you say this before, that this, uh, when you were confronted with several facts of women being oppressed in the past, that you say, well, that's an awful story to tell young men. This really gets to you. Why is Everybody's so? bloody oppressed in the past. Jesus, human history is a complete catastrophic nightmare. The more you read it, the more horrified you become. It's like the vast majority of people killed in wars are men. The vast majority of people who are killed in dangerous jobs are men. It's like, it's not like either of us had an easy time. I mean, the huge problem for women prior to the 20th century was death in childbirth. At least we got that under control. You know, and you could say, well, women didn't have all the rights that men had for quite a substantial amount of time. But it wasn't like most men had rights. Christ, what percentage of Eastern Europeans were serfs until 1850? The vast majority of people in the feudal ages were essentially slaves. The men didn't have any rights. Most men didn't get the vote until very late. And, you know, women got it afterwards, but not that many decades afterwards. And to construe the history of the human race as, this, as the pervasive oppression of women by men is, is it's a story invented by women who have never had a satisfactory relationship with a single man in their entire life. Not a brother, not a father, not a husband, not a son, nothing. Because if they had a satisfactory relationship, they would not be driving that narrative forward. You really do believe that? I absolutely... Why would I not believe it? What's the counter-evidence? Well, the counter-evidence are all those facts that women what facts? used to have less, less rights, like... Yeah, but so, yes, but you're looking at tiny periods of history. You tiny. know, for of course, for the vast majority of human history, most people were slaves, men and women. There were very few free people. And then in the West, you know, in the West for what since the Enlightenment, a small and increasingly large percentage of men started to develop a certain amount of freedom. And that spread very rapidly, very rapidly, over the, over the period of, a, of over a, a minimum number of hundreds of years. It spread, I think, as fast as it possibly could have, given all of the things that have to happen in order for that kind of equality to manifest itself. And we don't even know what the preconditions are for that equality. You can walk down the street in Holland safely. No, no. Compared to most places in the world, you can walk down the streets in Holland safely. Most of the places in the world, you can't walk down the streets safely. Well, how long does it take to establish a society that's civilized and sophisticated enough so that one of the primary hallmarks of your freedom would be the ability merely to walk somewhere unaccompanied? You say we should be thankful. Women should be thankful. I didn't say women should be thankful. I said people should be thankful that we've managed these things. And that we freed so many people in such a short time. You know, the social constructionists, their view of history is 300 years long, if that. Usually it's more like a decade. You look at this over any reasonable period of time, and freedom has spread among people so rapidly, especially in the last 500 years, that it's, it's
it's an absolute bloody miracle. You know, most men didn't have the vote 150 years ago. So we're looking at very small periods of time and, and the proclivity for freedom to spread and for equality to spread is very, very powerful. And, and there's virtually no one opposing it. You know, I mean, in the span of a single lifetime, it seems like things are progressing rather slowly, but from a cultural perspective, the rate of change is so fast that it's, well, that we can barely keep up with it. And I don't believe for a moment that the typical woman has fewer opportunities now than the typical man. I don't see that that's true at all. I don't think the facts support, the, I, I certainly don't think the facts support that that's true. Women are outperforming men at every level of the, of the economic hierarchy. You know, they, they, they don't do as well economically once they graduate, but that's partly because of the majors they determine to take and because of the, of the choices they make with regards to their career strategies. So I don't, this, this narrative of oppression is, it's, it's so, it's so resentful and so ungrateful and so unrealistic and so historically ignorant that it, that it, that that it's a miracle to me that people can swallow it. It's human history is simple. Things were terrible before 1895. Terrible. The average person in the West lived on less than a dollar a day in today's money, which is half the current rate that the UN regards as abject poverty, right? You're, you're going to be pregnant from the time you were 14 till the time you were 30, and the chances are that you were going to live through that was like zero. Your parents were going to be dead, at least one of them. You were going to lose at least half your children. You're going to spend the vast majority of your time in back-breaking work. You were, your life was hard, hard in a way that modern people can barely imagine. And there's been an economic miracle of unparalleled, of, of, of unparalleled significance in the last 150 years. And we're, we have so much more than we had then that, that the world isn't even, it isn't even vaguely. Okay. I have to change the battery and also I need to, um, turn this, um, Okay. I need to update this and then we'll continue.